This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects is the free app that lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download Bloomberg Connects to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences and cultural experiences and how they affect their life and work. Now, one of the questions that I ask each guest on A Brush With is about the living artists that they admire the most. And of course, by the very nature of this podcast, all of the guests that we have are people I admire hugely. But in this episode, I'm speaking to an artist who I've probably admired for longer than almost any other artist. I'm delighted to say that this episode is A Brush With, Rachel Whiteread. Rachel was born in Ilford, Essex, just outside London in 1963, and her mother, Patricia Whiteread, was an artist. Rachel initially studied painting at Brighton University, but while she was there she moved to sculpture, and one of the most important moments in that course was when the artist Richard Wilson, who was then part of a generation of artists who were really transforming sculpture in Britain, brought a mobile foundry down to Brighton University and Rachel took part in this workshop and what she did was she made the impression of a spoon in sand, removed the spoon and then poured molten metal into the shape left by the spoon and what she found was that yes it formed a shape that resembled the curve of a spoon but was in its own right something mysterious and unique and uncanny and in a way that has been her sculptural language ever since and she describes that as her eureka moment. So yes, ever since then, Rachel has been casting objects. She went on to study sculpture at the Slade School of Art in London after Brighton, and very soon after that she had an exhibition in 1988 in a gallery in North London, in which she showed the works which are now regarded as her first mature works. So there was a work called Closet, which was the cast of the interior of a wardrobe, which was covered in felt, and then also a work called Torso, which was a plaster cast of the interior of a hot water bottle and when you see these works today they still retain this undiminished power they still are remarkably uncanny objects so because closets covered in felt it encourages the idea of the wardrobe as a dark space for the imagination of children one thinks of c.s lewis's the lion the witch and the wardrobe and then torso this cast of a hot water bottle such a humdrum object very much evokes a body hence that title Now, those works were well-received in their own time, but the real breakthrough for Rachel came in 1990 when she showed her work Ghost at the Chisenhall Gallery in East London. In the proposal for that sculpture, she said that she wanted to mummify the air in a room, and that's exactly what she did. She turned the interior space of a room into a huge plaster cast, and what happened when she did that was that everything was in a way reversed. So the light switch became an impression rather than a protrusion, and the fireplace stuck out of the sculpture rather than being a void. And of course, by casting the interior space of the room, Rachel encouraged all sorts of poetic interpretation. So one thought about all the fires that had taken place in that hearth over the many decades that that room had existed, all the hands that had turned on those lights, all the lives lived in that room, the moments of affection, the moments of tension. And 
straight away after achieving that remarkable work, which is now in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, Rachel got even more ambitious. And when she was approached by the visionary producers of public art, Art Angel, she immediately said that she wanted to cast a whole house. And in fact, that's what she did. It took her a couple of years. And in 1993, the work House was unveiled in Bow in East London. And it's difficult now to remember the scale of controversy that that mammoth sculpture produced in that time. An enormous debate ensued and there were questions asked in the British Houses of Parliament. It only actually existed for less than three months, going up at the end of October and being demolished soon into the following new year. But it still is regarded as one of the great works of British sculpture of the 20th century. Rachel was then seen as the standard bearer for a new generation, the so-called Young British Artist, or YBAs, alongside Damien Hirst in particular. And her rise continued to be meteoric through the 90s. She represented Britain at the Venice Biennale in 1997. She then made a work for the Public Art Fund in New York, where she cast the inside of one of those conical water towers that sit on buildings across the city of New York in clear resin. She made a very memorable Holocaust memorial in Vienna, and she created Untitled Room 101 for a commission for the BBC. She also made a work in 2007 for the Turbine Hall in Tate Modern. Now, of course, the Turbine Hall is a vast space, so that was indeed a vast sculpture, but it consisted of lots of small elements, and actually that moment marked a shift in Rachel's work where she began to work a lot more intimately again after many years of creating enormous public projects. It consisted of lots of casts of the modest cardboard box, and it heralded a return to making for Rachel. She was keen to get away from these enormous productions and to get back to the studio to get her hands dirty again. And this was in keeping with events in her life, which you'll hear her describe a bit later. Rachel loves the studio. She loves being there, experimenting with materials. She's an artist who seems to have a grasp of materials that very few other artists have. She has an instinctive feel for what material is right, not just for the shape of the sculpture, but for the meaning that it conveys. And since the mid-2000s, she's had this sort of parallel practice. On the one hand, these more intimate works, so she's cast things like doors and windows, and those doors have titles, which are the dates of the door, so they conjure again a whole world of potential poetic reference. And then the windows are often titled in relation to light and vision, so that one imagines looking through them, but of course they're self-contained sculptures, so they're extremely powerful. And then alongside these more intimate sculptures, she's also also doing public sculptures but much less dramatic ones than she may have done earlier in her career so she actually calls them shy sculptures and they are remarkable things she did a boathouse on the edge of a lake in Norway for instance works that she called shacks in the Mojave Desert and on Governor's Island in New York in sight of the Statue of Liberty the cast of the interior of a shed Rachel's created one of the most consistent bodies of work I can think of over the last three decades, as her retrospective in 2017 in London, Vienna, Washington and St Louis revealed. But before asking about the work, I wanted to go right back to the beginning and her being the daughter of an artist. She grew up surrounded by her mother's work and in the presence of other artists. So I wanted to know, when did she herself know that she wanted art to be her life? I 
didn't decide to be an artist until actually relatively late on in school. It was in the sixth form. Oh, not that I was going to be an artist, but that I took an interest in art. Um, before that, I was desperately trying to do something else other than what my mother did <laughs> in that sort of teenage uh, rebellious way. Yeah, it, it was kind of interesting because she always, you know, from when I was born, um, she really started working. And, you know, she had three young children. And, you know, during that period in the 60s, it was pretty hard to, to do what she was doing. And we had a house big enough for her to have a bedroom as a studio. And, um, you know, my father worked full time and she was able to sort of somehow juggle the kids with sort of au pair girls and sort of chaos and and get on with with some of her work. So, you know, she was really extraordinary, I think, in the way she was committed early on to to sort of get her practice going. I'm also intrigued by your, the fact that your father was a geography lecturer, is that right? And But he took you on these field trips where you'd um, collect fossils. And, and obviously, given that you've used the term fossilising the air to describe what you do, there's a, there, there, is, it, is it too neat to um, associate those two things, the, the collecting fossils and then this idea of mummifying the air, fossilising the air in, of spaces? Um, well, I think that he, well, they were both a, a big influence on my life. But my father had a way of sort of looking at the world as sort of material in a way. And he taught and was a university student himself in humanitarian geography and humanities. So, you know, it was very much a sort of political, anthropological way in which he he sort of viewed the world. And it influenced all of us, actually, my mother as well, I would say. Um, he was very political and quite a thinker. And I think that was, you know, from the way in which he viewed the landscape and the way in which man had had had, had was worked with the landscape and uh, was on its way to beginning to trash the landscape. It was something that he was kind of interested in, and and you know we talked about as a family. And there's a dedication to your father in your book about the water tower project that you did in New York in the late 90s in which you say that it was his interest in industrial archaeology that you say enabled you to look up I'm intrigued by that idea can you explain a bit more well I I think it wasn't just looking up it was looking down looking inside and looking around you know I think uh you know often we would have family holidays and you know we'd stop by an interesting mine or an interesting sort of factory or you know these things that were were industrial marks on the landscape, um, you know, that were obviously things to do with our sort of economic ability as a country, um, but also uh, to do with the, the socialisation of, of, of communities and, you know, all of those things were very much a part of it. And, you know, the way in which I sort of looked at the water tower was that they were, I called them the sort of tear ducts of, of New York. You know, and I think that was sort of the way in which we we looked at things. You know, they had a reason for being there. I think a lot of people would just take all this sort of um, industrial sort of junk for granted but for me, it was something that was a, a very much a, a sort of part of part of my my kind of life and my background, actually. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've always been struck by this balance in your work between the rigor of the objects and the sort of formal power that they have, and the way they are they are utterly autonomous in that sense. 
um, and therefore their relation to things like minimalism, but also this intense content which is often autobiographical or relating to your own life or is exploring social conditions as well. And it, it, it strikes me that that's a particular balance in your work and it's one that you fought hard to um, get right because I guess it's I guess it's a difficult balance to get right, right? Um, well, I think it, it is in a, in a way, you know, one can work from one's own experience, shall we say. And, you know, for me to say work with the technology that's around now, um, it doesn't interest me. You know, I, I don't have any interest in in making work online or, or sort of um, playing with iPads and making drawings with electronic media. It's just not its just not a world that interests me. And I don't know if it's because I haven't grown up with it or I've just, I'm much more material girl. I, I would think it has something to do with the fact that as a child, I, I, there was always art materials around. There was always fossils and stuff around. There were bits and photographs and... Uh, you know, family holidays were always, you know, a trip to the landscape, but also a trip to the local dump. It was something that was just as part of what we did as a family. And, um, and you know, and I kind of pass on to my own kids, actually. <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite an effective way of looking at the world. So let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Um, I was thinking about this long and hard, actually. And I think the first artist that I probably really loved was Picasso. And I say that because when I was eight years old, I remember doing an, a school project on Picasso, on his rose period and his blue period. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'd been to see some paintings and was just sort of moved by them in a way that a child can be. And, you know, my mother had some books around and, you know, and I remember just sort of leafing through things and seeing that he painted and he made sculptures and he did pots. And, you know, and I just I remember thinking that he was, you know, a kind of jack of all trades and it was kind of wonderful. You know, I, I didn't really understand the sort of sociological content with the work and stuff, but I did understand that he could make things and paint things and be joyous and be sad and and seeing things that could create emotion and that he was a fully grown man and could draw uh, really childishly. I think I really enjoyed that sort of fact that these things had such a kind of openness to them. I wonder, I mean, there was that extraordinary Picasso show at the Tate a couple of years ago where it was looking at that one year in his life in 1932. And it had those extraordinary um, Boisjolou uh, sculptures that he made of Marie-Thérèse Walter. And just, I wondered if that if those sculptures still appeal today because they seem to me so raw. And you know, I can't imagine that as a sculpture you wouldn't be so sort of, if not inspired, at least intrigued and stimulated by them? No, of course. I mean, I think every media that he worked in, he he, he became a master of, um, you know, whether it was working with a piece of paper and making a collage or a, or a, a window drawing or a, a, a small maquette, you know, or, or using 
clay and concrete and bronze and, you know, the things that were much more sort of heavy handed. I think with clay, he was very intuitive in the way he made things. And, you know, I think that was really the thing about him that was so extraordinary was his intuition with work and 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 imagery and um and storytelling and emotion and, you know, all of those things that he, you know, virtually everything that he ever made was just packed with, um, you know, extraordinary artists. And which historical artist do you turn to the most? I would say probably Piero della Francesca. I mean, I, I love his work. I continue to love his work. I've always loved his work. Um, I never get bored of looking at a single painting. I mean, Vermeer's probably a close second, you know, and they're both, of course you know, very similar painters in a way. But I would say in terms of looking at sort of art historical work, that they would be the things that that come to me the most. I mean, I must say, I I thought that the recent show of Artemisa Gentileschi at the National Gallery was just extraordinary. Yeah, I thought it was really, you know, kind of blew your socks off. But, you know, that may be just because we've all been so starved of seeing art. Uh, but that's true. But I, but I thought, I thought it was a really great show. You know, as is whenever you see a, a show by Leonardo or any of those people that that had this incredible vision in times of, of really, really complex times, and could make these these you know incredibly focused and extraordinarily rich pieces of art. Yeah, I mean, obviously when one thinks about your work at next to Piero and Vermeer, there's a sort of silence about both of their works, which is a sort of very powerful quality in your own work. I mean, I'm not saying that you try to ape their work or in any way try to sort of directly refer to them, but it seems to me that that's a a quality that your work shares with them. Yes, I I would say, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say the things that I have in common with them, which I've readily honed over the years. And, um, uh, you know, I've never worked directly sort of looking at one of their pieces, trying to sort of reproduce it. But, you know, when I made Ghost, I was definitely thinking about Piero della Francesca's paintings and the composition, actually, more than anything else. Yeah. Can you say more about that in terms of composition? Uh, I mean, so, so many of his paintings are, are have this really incredible sort of um, vertical perspective, I suppose. But, uh, you know, early perspective, things are very kind of always very wonky, but everything marries incredibly well. If you take a, a square of his painting, you know, in virtually every, every time you do that randomly, they more or less have the same sort of symmetry to them. You know, so things are very, it's not, not the painting is completely regular, but there's a, a very, very pleasing way in which he draws the eye sort of up and down and in and through and by using colour and tone and, you know, and gold leaf and, and various other tricks that he used, uh, you know, it could really sort of draw the viewer um, through the work. What about living artists? Which living artists do you most admire? Um, I talk. Three are <laughs> uh, Cy Twombly, Bruce Nauman, and Louise Bourgeois to a certain point. They got to a point with her later work that I'm not so keen on, but the, but the sort of more raw things that she was very much responsible for, I loved. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, obviously Twombly and, and Bourgeois both recently died, yes. didn't they? We treat them as living artists in a sense. They're still absolutely with us. Yes, I mean, there's sort of these extraordinary artists that work, their work 
never really aged or ages. And in a way, I think with someone like Twombly, his most sort of celebratory and really extraordinary work with, with the paintings that he made of peonies and, you know, the flowers that he did late on in life. And it, they were really, I would say, a, a kind of a sort of passage to the love of life and, and not wanting to die and not wanting to leave this world and, you know, just wanting to carry on making beautiful things and being the celebrated artist that he is, you know. And I think he, you know, from, you know, from the 50s onward, his work didn't really change that much. You know, it was very much the same uh, way in which he, you know, used historical language to maybe put a sort of um, literary presence in the work, the way in which he, you know, looked at the world and sort of converted it into this sort of painterly mesh of of information. And, you know, the sort of abstract quality, the figurative quality. I love his sculptures. You know, I think they're these beautiful kind of lonely things that he did. And, you know, he's an artist that, you know, when I sort of said that about Louise bourgeois is that you know it, there came a point when she was very frail but a lot of work was being made and you can tell that it's not really her heart that's in that or her messy brain or her emotions you know but I think throughout um, Twombly's life he he just got there got in there and sort of did it himself and you can just see it you can see it in the work you know and I think uh, Nauman's the same you know Nauman hasn't hasn't over presented himself later on in life you know he's not been well he's you know but he still makes his own work it's still very present it's still him um and it's incredibly complex sort of philosophical psychological you know work that he just you know lives as a cowboy and makes this stuff you know out in the desert (laughs) (laughs) rather extraordinarily and with nauman is it right that you only discovered that he had cast the space underneath his chair after you had begun casting interior spaces yourself yeah 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 totally right yeah it's sort of funny i because i had seen his show the show that nick's rota curated at the whitechapel when he was um director of the whitechapel and I was in my first year at Brighton, I think, and I saw the show. I thought it was incredible. I didn't understand it at all, but it really stuck with me. And I sort of went back and sort of looked him up and tried to understand what it was he was doing. And yeah, I was really intrigued by the kind of awkwardness of it and the difficulties of it and the ugliness of it and the beauty of it and you know, and the way he never worked with materials for their sort of aesthetic sense. It was always just about the job. And he had, I think, a great ability. Uh, well, well, actually, when I was then a student and would come up, we'd do our sort of regular, you know, termly visits to Cork Street and all of the incredible videos, which there's a lot of at the Tate at the moment. And, uh, you know, they were so affecting and so brutal and kind of mind-bending and you know there were all the kids at at Brighton at the time which was where I was doing my degree uh, in the 
there was a sort of dark arts area of fine art. <laughs> I can't remember what it was called. <laughs> every every college had a different name for it, but basically the media department. Moving image <laughs> section or whatever it was called. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's always a different name <laughs> yeah. for it. Yeah, video, moving yeah, image, exactly, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they yeah. were... I like dark arts, actually, that's great. <laughs> they were, um, <laughs> you know, they were all trying to sort of make work like that, essentially, but no one could and they no one really knew what it was and... Yeah, he was just a master of it and, and, and influenced 25 years of dark arts. <laughs> <laughs> but, but is it fair to say that when, for instance, when you made 100 Spaces, which is the cast of 100 spaces under chairs made in these beautiful coloured resin, that, that by then it wasn't an homage to, to Nauman, but it was done fully in the knowledge that he'd done that work, for instance? Yes, yes. Yes, totally. He he was aware, and I was aware that he was aware. Um, he'd seed seed some of my work, and you know, and he congratulated me and said, you know, you've pushed it further than I ever could, you know, and you know, great stuff, sort of thing. So it wasn't like you know, it was like I was exactly playing homage to the great master. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you a bit about, in terms of living artists, about what it was like to be cast or or pigeonholed into this box with the other YBAs, with whom, for instance, many of them you, you hadn't been to college with, you weren't part of that Goldsmiths group, for instance, but you were, in, in the early 90s, put into that box with them. And I wonder what that was like as an artist to be seen as part of a movement and how loosely you felt you were connected to it, if at all? Um, I certainly felt connected in terms of there being this really rather extraordinary energy. And, you know, I was very suspicious of a lot of the artists early on, I must say, and, you know, I still am, quite frankly. (laughs) But um, I think that, you know, there were a number of them that were really good and continue to be really good and we're all going to have our ups and downs and some people are still on the up and some people are on the down and it's just how it is you know and uh, but I would say that generally it was a, a kind of useful umbrella that we were all under and I think it meant that there was a a sort of openness that was given to the sort of fine art practice um, uh, that, that they'd never been before and that people were beginning to understand things in a different way and it wasn't sort of taking the piss anymore and it wasn't just, her, you know, those pile of bricks at the tape or, you know, people were taking on this sort of idea of, 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 of modern art in a way that I don't think they really had done. And, um, you know, in terms of the general public, you know, and now we have what we have now, which is a, a sort of extraordinary melee of of art and practice and you know everyone's a critic and everyone you know but I mean not in the past year because of covid but you know that generally there's this incredible energy about about looking at art that there never really was before um I can't say I fully sign up to that personally um you know, I don't think we're all art critics and I don't think everybody knows everything and I don't think Banksy's a great artist, you know, which I think, he, you know, he's someone that's sort of come into this thing as a as a real sort of outsider and someone that I used to love seeing his little doodlings around Old Street and whatever when I was, you know, 20 years ago. But, you know, the crazy way in which that's developed is a whole other thing. 
on commerce. Yes, exactly. It's connected to the market, yes, isn't it? Yeah. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? That 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 scene, the YBA scene, when you, especially when you look at things like the fates worse than death in the early nineties, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. There was a real kind of homespun DIY aesthetic. There was that energy of you know just creating shows all over the place in disused spaces. But then as soon as commerce really started getting involved with it in a significant way, it did change the scene, didn't it? Yeah, it did, and and I, you know, and, f- and not for the better at all, as I'm sure you'd agree. You know, it's just something that yeah. happens, I think, and things become diluted when that happens. You know, and with the dilution, people just become lazy, and it's you know not not interesting. We've talked a lot about other artists, but do you have any of them on your studio walls? Do you pin them to the studio walls as sort of references? I was looking around the studio actually. I'm sort of working between two studios at the moment. One of them is definitely no other art on the wall. In the other one, there's lots of little artefacts from museums around the world that I've picked up. There's a Bridget Riley. There's a Piero della Francesca. There's, you know, there are things that sort of pop through the letterbox, which doesn't, actually doesn't happen so much anymore. Um, but, you know, you'd get a private view card for something and you think, oh, God, that's great. And you'd kind of put it up and it'd live <laughs> yeah. there for a bit and then something else would replace it. But no, I don't, I don't really have... Oh, actually, I've got the Raft of the Medusa up as well. I've got quite a big picture of the Raft of the Medusa up. Um, oh, that's an intriguing one. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so they're the sort of things that I have lying around but I'm much more of a kind of pick up stuff as well as postcards you know I have a lot of crap in my studio (laughs) things that I find in your drawing show at Tate Britain a few years back you had that cabinet of curiosities which were very often things that you just found and had ter- terrific resonance when brought together with the other bits and sometimes they were things little casts that you'd done yourselves and things so you compose these these um associative sculptural essays don't you with with the objects that you have around you yeah and it's something that i you know i've always done no matter what size the studio's been you know there's always these little uh sort of reminders and doodles and things you know just lean one thing against the other and think oh maybe that would work in something else later on or you know that they're, 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 they're visual reminders of, of what I might do or what I've done and then there's this recent work called Untitled Pinboard yeah I see yeah that, um but that's much more about the, the kind of your own um created objects the photographs you've taken and things like in a way the kind of studies for your work right that you have on pin boards around yeah you. i mean there's always i've always got two or three pin boards up in the studio and they have things on and some you know sometimes you know it might be a drawing from 1985 uh, next to a drawing from 2015 and uh uh you know there's sort of visual clues as to what i might do or it might be a bit of paper which I pin in a certain way so it, it sort of curls in a certain way on the wall or you know so it, it's always about sort of I suppose kind of framing things and place and you know it's not that my ha- my studio is a sort of domestic place but my house is kind of similar to my studio in, in which there's all this sort of stuff around um it's slightly different because it's got my husband's taste in it as well, which is obviously really annoying. But 
<laughs> but, uh, How dare he impose exactly, his taste on you? Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's quite funny because I'm always like, oh, do you have to put that there? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, the, you know, my studio is always, it's just there's visual information around and there's a lot of it. You know, and I think often people come into the studio and you see their eyes just kind of flicking around the place, thinking, God, she's nuts, you know. <laughs> All this stuff, where's that plain wall? That yeah, actually, I do have play, I have bits of, uh, you know, areas where I keep them clear just so that I can go, you know, look into space sometimes and not think about anything. <laughs> This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. The app offers access to numerous cultural institutions through a single download. Now, when I think of Rachel Whiteread's work in London, countless exhibitions and public sculptures come to mind. Not just House, that seminal work of art in the East End in 1993, but moments like her exhibition at the Serpentine Gallery in 2001, and the gold decorations and window casts that she created for her permanent commission for the facade of the Whitechapel Gallery in 2012. And you can find out more about both the Whitechapel and the Serpentine by exploring the guides to them on the Bloomberg Connects app. You can look at their most recent exhibitions and commissions, complete with audio and video content. The Serpentine Guide takes you to its excellent programme of online art and its annual architectural pavilions, including an interview with the most recent architect, Junya Ishigami. On the Whitechapel Guide, you can explore its archive or find out more about its Max Mara Art Prize for Women and the latest winner, Emma Talbot. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at app.bloombergconnect.org slash a brushwith. Let's talk about museums and galleries. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Most frequently, I would probably say the Tate, I would say. You know, I'll never go to Tate Modern, say, and look at the collection and an exhibition I'll always just go and choose one thing and because I think it's just a nightmare because it's so big uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I really am quite careful and conscious about how I how I use that I mean I think it's interesting again now that you know there's a, so many uh, and I don't know if this will change sort of post-covid but there are so many uh, galleries which have these extraordinary spaces now and uh, you know, they're all moving closer together again. They're all around Mayfair. I, you know, I can do it for half a day, any more, you know, for three or four hours, any more than that. It just kind of blows your mind. But, I, you know, you can look at some really extraordinary museum standard shows and you can see 10 of them in a in a morning, you know, and that's what a gift that is actually in London. And then I suppose in terms of museums, uh the British Museum I go to a lot. Um, yeah, and again, just to go and see one thing or or to sort of, you know, go to the minerals department at the Science Museum or go to the V&A or, you know, that there'll be just something that I choose to go and see. I won't spend hours there, but I'll, you know, go and look at something. And, you know, I think those... Um, you know, it's always what I do when I travel abroad as well. I'll... I'll I'll keep a day to go and look at sort of funny museums, whether they're clock museums or whatever, just because they, you know, I think there's there's something that tells you so much about sort of culture and the place and, yeah, and it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And with with things like the British Museum and the V&A, 
um, there's always a tendency to look at the ways that your work relates to you know ancient objects as well as you know if you were to go to the Tate see its connection to the contemporary world because for instance there's there are a lot of parallels between some of your works in fact you've made direct reference to sarcophagi for instance so yeah and, and I wonder you know is, is it too obvious to say that for instance that you have taken inspiration directly from looking at ancient objects like that no I think it's definitely something that I've used in the past I mean not not now so much but you know I'll, I'll go and look at you know, Assyrian tablets or something, you know, I just, it wouldn't necessarily be that. It would be something, you know, of the old world, which is just fascinating and beautiful and beautifully carved and mysterious. And, you know, I don't go there with an archaeologist's eye. I go there with a sculptor's eye and look for pattern and form and shape and colour and, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, you know, one of the most memorable trips I've done over the last 20 years was a trip to Egypt, you know, and, and going to, to all the museums. I, I, think, I think that a lot of them are being reorganised and they're not in the way in which they were. Because when I saw them, they were, they were literally sort of the sand dunes were in the middle of the museums. <laughs> it was sort of incredible the way the stuff was being looked after, but it was amazing, amazing to see it in those circumstances. And, and as I say, it tells you so much about the culture and everything else. Uh, which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? You know, I would say in terms of impact of other cultures on my work, in terms of travelling and trips, and one is I absolutely mourn the fact that we're about to leave Europe. Um, that's, you know, that's gruesome for, for many reasons. Um, but outside of Europe, I would say that the, the most interesting sort of cultural experience was probably going to Egypt, actually. I think Egypt was a very, very interesting and sort of informative time. Though when I was in my first year at Brighton, I went to Russia, but, for very very long time ago and it was that was extraordinary and it really affected me um yeah that was the soviet union then of course there's a brilliant there's the an same. amazing photograph of you on that trip actually yeah, standing yeah. next to one of those massive socialist realist sculptures yeah, yeah in a big fake fur coat <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was just extraordinary it was extraordinary and going to see lenin um stuffed lenin was extraordinary <laughs> Uh, and travelling through the night on the trains was extraordinary. I mean, everything about it was extraordinary. I had three proposals of marriage, which when I was 19 was quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was because I was the the most beautiful person they'd ever seen. I think it was just because I had a passport. (laughs) 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 Yeah. um, That's great. Yeah. Let's talk about literature now. Which writers or poets do you return to? You know, I I tend to read a lot of um, books which are stories of ordinary people and and often people that get into difficult times. And I think there's a lot of American writers that I've read diligently over the years. Uh, I think someone like Marilyn Robertson is a beautiful writer and has this incredible poetry and um, quietness and sort of philosophical edge, which is, you know, I think incredibly touching. Uh, So there's there's a lot of writers like that that I've been, 
you know, reading over the years. Uh, I read a lot of books on sort of psychology and um, read quite a lot of science books. I read uh, nature books. You know, I, I have this sort of array of stuff. I mean, my bedside table is covered in half-read books about things that I think I'm going to be fascinated by and kind of get bored halfway through. But, you know... (laughs) I was intrigued that that, that you had asked Paul Auster to write about your work at one stage. and Because I love love Auster and I can imagine Auster writing very powerfully about your work. So I was, was, you know, that's a sort of an unrealised project which I'd very much like to happen. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would too. But he, he was very... Reluctant. I can't, and I remember actually reading that there's a, a very sort of touching book that he wrote about his father and um, clearing his father's house and when his father passed away. And I, I kind of, it's probably around the same timeline. So it might have been when I asked him, he just thought I was, it was too much in the sort of territory that he was writing about anyway. But, you know, Paul Auster's a big, a, a good example of um, a writer that, you know, I devoured, you know, totally devoured everything that he wrote. And, you know, and that's sort of what I do. I get kind of crushes on novelists and, <laughs> and devour them. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, of, of course, I read uh, Elena Ferranti, and which I think every female friend of mine read you know and you know there's poets that I read um there's a a very good poet friend of mine a guy called Mark Waldron um who's a very interesting poet who's also a advertising copywriter right and and he's introduced me to uh a lot of poets uh a lot of American poets actually uh, and I'm still trying to understand a lot of them. It's a sort of way, you know, I, I, I find it interesting with poetry. It's a bit like wine or or it's a bit like contemporary art in the way that, you know, there are these new, young, interesting wineries that make these really interesting wines. And, you know, but only one in five of them are any good. You know, <laughs> you've got to work out which one it is. You know? And it's a bit like that with art and it's a bit like that with, um, poetry so uh, you know I've been kind of investigating uh, some of his recommendations one thing that strikes me is that like Mark has written about your work I know there was in your book detached which was relating to the show you had a Gagosian a few years ago there's a poem by Mark in that and then I know yes that in another book there's a there's a piece of fiction that A.M. Holmes wrote in con- yes. sort of thinking yeah. about your work and 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 so your work has always triggered responses from writers and poets. But do you feel like it works the other way too? Do you feel there's literature in the inspiration for your work, if you like? Definitely, yeah, yeah. And there's there's two women writers and they can write a whole story that's actually three sentences. You know, and that's something often that I try and do is make a sculpture that is just one sentence or, you know, or feels like that or a word. So, you know, and I think that's where poetry can become very interesting is is the way things are honed in on to such a degree that it's 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 just the sound of these two words touching or, you know, just things that happen in poetry that, you know, just don't happen in novels or, or music or, you know, because it's always the sound of your own voice. Uh, reading it and those are the things that I find very exciting about poetry you know it's always great to to hear poets reading their own work actually 
one of the things I'm conscious of is that in your titles, you can occasionally suggest a sort of dimension that the viewer can sort of open up, if you like, if they choose to, to have a kind of yeah. lyrical interpretation of the work. And certainly that's the case. I mean, with House, for me, I, I saw that, that work so many times whilst I was also reading The Waves by Virginia Woolf. So the two are sort of very connected in my okay. mind, you know. So, so, and I wonder, you know, that, that there is a sort of element of suggestion or poetic suggestion in your titles, but you don't want to push that too far and over-encourage particular associations or connections, right? Yeah, and it's a fine balance, actually. It's a fine line to, to be able to do that. And so often I, I won't title things at all. I'll just untitle them or just call them untitled. But sometimes, I mean, for instance, you know, I made a number of works during the sort of first lockdown period, which I just called them by the month, you know, the month of the year. And I... You know, a lot of people were making work, you know, my lockdown drawings or my, you know, my COVID works or COVID-19 or, you know, and I never wanted to do that. I didn't even really want them to be located in that time, but it's interesting to have a reference to it, I think. So, yeah, exactly that. But, you know, there are been, you know, other works which have been much more carefully thought about in an early works that I made so like closet and yellow leaf and fort and flap and mantle and you know all of those titles were you know very carefully thought about and it, you know I'd spend hours you know going through my thesauruses and my dictionaries and you know, <laughs> thumbing through them yeah and then there's that sense in which you can with the doors for instance you get you just had the date Alongside, so it was unti- untitled, and then the, and then and then the date from which that door was, and therefore again, rather like what happens when you just look at the the cast spaces, a, a, a game of imagining the lives of those who've who've lived with these things suddenly opens up, and suddenly you're in this, you're sort of immersed in memory and history, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about Orwell because because there's the, you know if they, the the sort of most overt literary reference in your work is in the work Room One Hundred One, which is this huge cast of a room that's at the, the old broadcasting house, which was the work, which was the room that Orwell worked in, and then re- reportedly you know prompted him to think of Room One Hundred One in 1984. And I wondered when you made that work. Were you? Did you read 1984, or was it was it was it not as sort of straightforward as that? Uh, well, I'd obviously read 1984 before, probably a couple of times. I'm very aware of it. And when I was asked about the project, I was given a couple of sentences just explaining what this room was, and I was blown away by it, just as an idea. And you know, no matter what the room would have looked like, I would have done it. You know, because I just loved the the way the two things married together, the, the, the sort of process of him having uh, worked there and hated working at the BBC and it becoming this, this his sort of angry room. And, um, and I, I just loved that idea that he'd, he'd been there. And when I went to see the room, it was just full of sort of plant, industrial plant, and it was full of aluminium tubes and pipes and 
electrical things and and I just went in and just said, okay, just clear it. I just want everything pulled out as roughly as you can because I had this idea that I quite like to, to make the sort of bare bones of the room or the room with all its scabs and, you know, there, there was somehow how Orwell might have sort of thought about this room and that it would be almost like a war zone. And uh, so, yeah, we carefully, once it had all the stuff had been pulled out, I then sort of artfully worked with that and touched it up and pulled more things out and, you know, made it into the sculpture that it is now. There's a broken window, isn't there? Yeah, maybe a cracked pane. Yeah, there were certainly bits that were broken, yeah. yeah. Lots of bits of bare brickwork and stuff, yeah. What music or other audio do you listen to as you work? Um, I listen to music. It's kind of interesting because I have, uh, as I say, I've been working between uh, two studios. I've got one studio which is nice and warm and has a stereo in it with all my CDs. And then I have a studio, another studio, which is freezing cold and that I have Spotify. <laughs> and Spotify I have a real love-hate with and uh, <laughs> because it's... Uh, never plays you the thing you ever want to actually hear. <laughs> Always plays you something else or some other version of what you thought you were going to hear. So it's some other cheaper recording that they've got. And uh, it always really irritates me. So very often I'll just turn it off after a while. Or if I want to keep warm, I'll you know put on some dance tracks and have a little boogie whilst I'm <laughs> trying try to warm up a bit. Um but generally, I, I listen to a lot of radio. Um, I listen to a lot of uh, Radio 4. I, I do listen to podcasts, but um, again, I, you know, I listen to them sort of part-time. I get a bit annoyed with them, you know. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully people won't get annoyed with this one. <laughs> <laughs> I get... Um, I listen to quite a lot of classical music, um, but you know it's always in this in that studio because it's a big studio and you have to wear headphones, and I find that quite claustrophobic. Actually, I much prefer to have an ambient sound with speakers, and quite often I'm in silence. I've got as someone who works with me, and he's actually a musician, and he always laughs when he's you know puts his music on because I hand him this tiny little boy speaker and said, there you go. <laughs> you can have it sort of, you know, six foot away from him maximum. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it doesn't pollute, pollute the entire space. Yeah. Are, there, um, are there particular musical artists that you might use to kind of achieve a certain mood, like classical composers or something that you might put on when you know that you need to be particularly concentrated or, or that, that give you a kind of inspiration for a kind of mode of working? Uh, I listen to Nick Cave a lot. I listen to um, PJ Harvey. I listen to Keith Jarrett. Um, I mean, my musical tastes haven't really changed for decades. I kind of always listen to the same things. And occasionally a new artist will come in and you think, wow, that's great. And you listen to it for a bit. But I do generally come back to the same sorts of sorts of stuff. Um, you know, in terms of classical music, I, you know, things like... Um, you know, Bach piano concertos, things like that, you know, maybe played by Glenn Gould or something that's that sort of has a fast pace that's 
not too expansive in terms of going off in all these different places because you then end up going with it and you don't concentrate. Right. So, <laughs> so I quite like listening to sort of plod, you know, because I, I just plod along with music, you know, and uh, yeah. I, I listen to a lot of women vocal stuff in early folk music and, you know, I quite like listening to monks singing whilst I'm working. Oh. Um, yeah. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I suppose my ritual starts with getting to the studio and having coffee <laughs> and then probably having two coffees before I actually really get going. I never used to sort of stop for lunch or anything, but as I've got older, I now stop for lunch. I'll go out and get some lunch. You know, those things that act as, as pauses in your day, I quite enjoy. You know, I tend to work in the studio, you know, since I've had children, very much a kind of, you know, eight till five, eight till six, um, and um, you know, and five days a week. I don't, I don't go in at the weekend, or very rarely go in at the weekend. Um, you know, we sometimes away at weekends. We've got a little beach house in Essex, which I go to, and we'll maybe work on some stuff there. But you know, I do. I have a slower pace with work, and and I think that's good actually. I kind of in, in enjoying that. Yeah. There was this really important moment in your career, wasn't there, when there was a number of different life events that, that triggered it, but you, where you clearly made a decision about returning to the studio and being a maker. And I, I know that yeah. one of them was like, you know, you mentioned Paul Auster and this experience of, of him going through his father's things. I know that, that going through your mother's things was an incredibly important moment for you and mm. prompted a whole series of works, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that and having children, I think, well, I think becoming an orphan, which is, uh, you know, I may have been quite old, but it's still quite a big deal. You know, when both of your parents passed, my dad died when he was 59, when he was very young. Um, and, you know, when my mother died, who I was very close to, you know, you become this, it's like you lose an anchor, you lose your anchor. And, you know, I felt adrift. And but I had two small children to anchor me, and um, and we worked in a building where I lived and worked, uh, and very much enjoyed the process of living and working in the same building as as my family, and would work at strange times of the day, and you know I was able to to play with my working process and practice, and I made a lot of things myself after having had, you know, worked with at sometimes ten assistants, and you know. Now I work in a very different way where my, you know, who was my assistant from the day he left college and he now has his own sort of sculpture making set up and he makes a lot of work for me but somewhere else. He makes work for other artists too and, I, you know, I go over to his studio and we, and we make the work like that and it's just a half-hour meeting and he knows what you're doing and I go back and check it and, you know, it's a very different way of doing stuff. But I am still very hands-on and um, and make uh, quite small-scale work, though I am, I've been working for the past sort of year and a half on two very large works which will be in uh, my Gagosian show in April um, and I've, they're all totally hand-made by me in the studio. Because there are artists like Damien, Damien Hurst, who who continues to have a factory, you know, and he has a lot of people working for him and sells enormous amount of work all over the world. And I just don't have that 
interest in, in sort of working like that, and I never have done. And, you know, for me, it's much more intimate and entertaining and intellectually rigorous and um, finite, you know, doing it yourself and working, you know, going from my sort of desk to my studio to a table to a sink to a bag of plaster to, you know, some paint or whatever it is, you know. Those things are, you know, I wouldn't say an old-fashioned sculptor, but I I like to get my hands dirty and I like to play with materials. And, um, yeah, it's it's important to me. And, I, you know, I hope I never lose that because it's uh, what keeps it alive for me. I suspect I know the answer to this question, but if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? I was thinking about this as well, but I think it still has to be The Baptism by Piero della Francesca, a painting that I have loved since I was a small child and, you know, and love and think about probably every day, actually, one way or another. Yeah, it's like a sort of um, long-lost friend. And lastly, what's art for? Art is for shaking us up, for making us aware. It's for politically engaging us. It's for intellectually engaging us. It can be for entertainment and it's a necessity of life. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Okay, thank you. As Rachel mentioned, she has a show at Gagosian Grosvenor Hill in London in April. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a look at the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on a brush with are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalal. Massive thanks to Rachel Whiteread. We're now taking a break over the holidays. Join us on Wednesday the 13th of January for the next episode of this podcast and on Friday the 15th of January for the next episode of The Week in Art. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.